Let's turn to the Lord in prayer as we get ready to hear from his word to us this day. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, you have promised to ascend the grace of your spirit to all those who ask. And Lord Father, we do pray that you would indeed give us insight into your holy word. We pray that you would do as you've promised, to guide us into all truth by your Holy Spirit, that we might be doers of your word, not just merely hearers who deceive themselves. Lord, we pray that you would make your word among us this day as it truly is, a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. We confess, O Father, that we do not revere and esteem your word as we ought to. But Father, we pray that you would cause us to hearken unto it now with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind with all our strength. O Lord God, through Christ, what we know not, teach us. What we have not, give us. And what we are not, make us for your own glory and for our good now and forevermore. And so we would ask, Father, that you would take away distractions that might be lingering in our minds, put them aside, that we might humbly attend and receive your word, which can only be done so with a believing heart empowered by your sovereign grace applied to our hearts by your spirit. And so, Lord, we would ask now that you would cause this lowly preacher and servant of yours to, to get out of the way. Uh, may uh, he decrease and may the Lord Jesus Christ increase. Call sinners unto yourself through the ministry of your word. And we would ask that you would apply the truth of your word to our hearts. And it's in Jesus' mighty and exalted name that we pray this for his sake. Amen. Well, friends, at this time, I invite you to take up your own copy of God's word and turn with me in them, if you would, to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And I want to read for us. Uh, The first 15 verses of this chapter, however, we'll be considering uh, verse uh, 15 in our sermon. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, reading all the way to verse 15. Hear now the holy, living, and infallible word of our God. Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ is come. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first. And the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And now you know what is restraining, that he may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. The coming of of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan, with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth, that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion, that they should believe the lie, that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. But we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren beloved by the Lord, because God, 
from the beginning shows you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth to which he called you by our gospel for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or our epistle. Amen. So ends the reading of God's uh, holy, righteous, and preserved word, and may he write it now on each of our hearts and upon our minds. You may be seated. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or our epistle. Here in these words, beloved, uh, we have the climactic and main takeaway point that Paul, Savannah, and Timothy have been working uh, to get to in this chapter. First, how do we live expectantly in worthy lives by grace as the long-awaited day of our gathering together to Christ draws nearer and nearer? Verse 1. Second, how do we ensure that we are not shaken or troubled in mind by all the deceitful methods employed by our adversaries to cast doubt upon the personal coming of the Lord Jesus at the end of the world, verses 2 through 3. The third, how do we keep ourselves from being duped and led astray by the falling away and that ringleader, the anti-Christian kingdom, even the Antichrist, by the Antichrist, that man of sin and son of perdition mentioned uh, really... And verses 3 to verse 12. And fourthly, how do we live a life in utter thankfulness for the grace of election that has flowed so graciously and lavishly unto us by the Father's love for us in Christ? And doing it in a way that authenticates and assures us of the privileged calling we've received freely in the gospel, verses 13 and 14. In short, according to the words here written by the Apostle Paul, we are to strive by faith, brothers and sisters, to persevere in the true doctrine of Christianity, that which is called apostolic doctrine, the teachings and ordinances that have been once and for all delivered unto Christ's saints, as Jude says at chapter 1 of verse 3. We are to earnestly contend for that till our dying day, not wavering from it in the slightest degree. Hence, these words set forth to us with great fervency and holy sternness. Um, they, that's why they're set forth in these ways, because the need is absolutely paramount, my friends. Therefore, stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or our epistle. And so, in seeing this great and decisive charge to all of us as saints in Christ Jesus, uh, to a, a resolute uh, perseverance uh, in the heavenly doctrine of the gospel, I've entitled my sermon this morning, as you can see it in the bulletin, per, uh, Persevering in True Christian Doctrine. Persevering in True Christian Doctrine. We all know this, I do hope, that this is something that we have all been called to in Christ. But how do we 
actually go about doing it, you might ask? That's the question at hand. Or what are the critical keys or components that are absolutely essential to vital Christian perseverance in an unbelieving world that seeks, friends, as you know, to pull us away from our holy and heavenly calling placed upon us? Therefore, from this text, the question we need to be asking ourselves is is this. What do we see in this text that will bolster our commitment to the true apostolic faith that we see in the Scriptures? And as we ask ourselves this in our examination of this passage of Scripture this morning, friends, we're going to bring to light three foundational components of our Christian perseverance. Those which are needed for Christian perseverance. Three foundational components of Christian perseverance. Ones that will spur us on to exercising a greater degree of it in our lives. For our own safety from being deluded and dominated by false doctrines, false teachers, and all manner of spiritual wickedness that is intended to pull us away from the true and living Christ. And so first we'll consider... If you're taking notes this morning, the motivation for Christian perseverance, the motivation for Christian perseverance, and that is expressed under the grammatical inference made at the beginning of our text. Therefore, brethren, stand fast, etc. Secondly, from there, we'll focus upon the exhortation conveyed by those two imperatives, stand fast and hold, which we'll call the method for Christian Perseverance, the method for Christian perseverance. And then thirdly and finally, we'll unpack what are the means for Christian perseverance. Namely, what specifically Paul, Savannah, and Timothy are instructing us to specifically hold on to. What is rendered in our English translations, the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or our epistle. And so what does the Holy Spirit mean by that? And especially, what does he not mean? So these are the three points I have for you this morning, friends, and so let us now take them up one by one, desiring uh, to press each of them to our own hearts that we might showcase greater perseverance in our hearts, minds, and actions. Let's begin with the first, the motivation for Christian perseverance. Consider with me, brothers and sisters, what great motivation there is here. Uh, stated in the text, to urge us, uh, to prod us in our gospel perseverance. Look at the text once again with your own eyes. Therefore, brethren, uh, stand fast and hold. It would be a grave mistake for us to disassociate these words from the two verses which immediately precede it. Notice here that it is specifically basking in the assurance of God's love Toward us, manifested in the sovereign grace of election, and all of the fruits, the glorious fruits, fruits that flow from it, our salvation in Christ, that provide for us, friends, the incentive to carrying out the divinely given responsibility of standing firm in the gospel of grace. Do you see that? All of the gracious and sovereign acts of the triune God in His saving His people, they are actually to compel those very same group of people who have experienced so great a salvation to manifest a desire to stand firm in the calling that they have undeservingly received in the Gospel. It spurs them on 
to press on in their salvation. By working it out more in sanctification, what God through Christ has bestowed upon them within. Therefore, the doctrine of sovereign election, rightly understood and adored by the Christian, it doesn't incite negligence. Far from it, my friends. For Paul and his two gospel co-labors, Silvanus and Timothy, it bid them to dig their stakes in even deeper in Christian ministry. And it caused them to realize how infinitely great their responsibility was to now walk worthy in their calling in a way pleasing to God who called them and chose them to be such gracious obtainers of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. So the sense of this, therefore, in the text, we could say is this, as one put it well. Thessalonians, in view of the fact that you have been chosen from eternity and that you are to be raised up to such honor and glory, stand firm in your salvation all the way to the end, no matter what great evils, persecutions, and temptations you will be faced with in this life. That's the sense here, friends. Because you have received so much in Christ, believer. Uh, We have from Him and in Him all that we need to persevere and to make good of it by grace without wavering. The Apostle Paul says it this this way in Colossians 2, verses 6 through 7. As you therefore have received Christ the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and build it up in Him and established in the faith as you have been taught abounding with thanksgiving. Christians, God the Father in Christ has done the initial electing of you in eternity past, before there ever was a beginning of the world as we know it. He has sanctified your miserably unsanctified and unholy self by the regenerating power of His Spirit, given you the gift of faith to respond effectually in belief to the saving truths of the Gospel. And He has made you a future and full inheritor of that same glory that Christ advanced to in His true and perfect humanity. And now what does God call us to do in return upon being such recipients of all this unmerited grace upon grace that there is in the Gospel? To stand firm in it. And to do so with great delight. To know it to be true in your soul and to seek to live in humble gratitude, in light of it, forever indebted to God's grace toward you. Not trying to earn it on the basis of your own merit, as that's not only foolish, but impossible. But having it impact you, friend, in such a way that you fully embrace your duty on your part, which is to walk in your salvation with great diligence and with great care. So while, yes, verses 13 and 14 speak of the absolute certainty and safety of our salvation for the believer in Christ Jesus, yet we see that this doctrine of Scripture does not at all by any means revoke our need to stand firm in it. The sovereign God, you know, does the preserving of His saints by grace. And so therefore, we are by His grace enabled to actively persevere And they will do this, we will do this, uh, being empowered by grace through faith. And so, 
we see these two realities come together here in perfect harmony, don't we? They're not at war with one another. God's preservation and our perseverance. No, we have God's preservation of his people in redemption on the one hand, verses 13 and 14, and redeemed man's duty to persevere in God in the other, verse 15. Notice how these things are tightly knit together. Matthew Henry says it best when he says this about the opening part of this verse. Listen to what he says. God's grace in our election and calling is so far from superseding our diligent care and endeavor that it actually, to the contrary, ought to quicken and enlarge in us to the greatest resolution and diligence. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we who profess to be those who hold unflinchingly and ashamedly to the sovereign grace of God in election, all of the doctrines of grace, and in the internal and in the irresistible call of the gospel, we should be a people who take perseverance, personal perseverance, the most seriously in this life. Because we cannot have one without the other. Let us never divorce means and ends, for our God always uses both. Hence, those who are the most affected internally by God's grace toward them, as you consider what God has done for us in election, it will be those who stand the firmest in faith and will be the least slothful in doing the things of the Lord. Being reminded daily of the fully secure redemption that is ours in Christ, it is an enormous encouragement. It is a a wonderful stimulator to our faith. And so therefore, beloved, we need to often look back at our salvation with great wonder and with thanksgiving in our hearts. If we are to persevere, if we are to make substantial strides in the Christian life, this is what we call actively abiding in Christ. 1 John chapter 2, verses 27-28. through 28, We have both the promise that believers will abide and the duty prescribed to us to do it in faith. The Apostle John says, you will abide in Him. And immediately after, he says, now little children, abide in Him. Providing a most glorious motive that when Christ appears we may have confidence and not be ashamed before Him at His coming. God's promise to us is that we are the preserved, kept ones of Jesus Christ by grace. Jude chapter 1, verse 1. That should give us an abundance of encouragement, all the encouragement needed to persevere in fulfilling our calling that Christ has placed upon you and I as believers, should it not. Therefore, As the text says, therefore, seeing the irrevocable sureness of what can never be taken away from us because of what God has done for us in Christ, uh, what he has done for us as a people, may this perpetually be a motivating reason for us to stand fast and hold our salvation dear and never depart from this way of grace through and through. So having briefly touched upon how the doctrines of the grace of the gospel actually truly incentivize us as saints to stand firm, we should probably now speak a little to what standing firm actually entails. 
Should we not? And so we'll do this under a second key component of what true spiritual perseverance involves, which I've called the method for Christian perseverance. Now, you might say to me, Pastor Trace, all right, I see that surely this text calls us to standing firm, standing fast. But how do I go about doing this? I want to, that's my utmost desire, but, do, but how do I cultivate? How do, how do I grow in my daily perseverance for Christ? Because so many people that I know who once claimed to be followers of Christ have since abandoned Him entirely. So I want to know, I'm desperate to know, how to practically repel and stand against the culture that wants to shake my faith. Well, if that's your desire, great. Let's get into it right now. And we'll do so, friends, by looking at two, these two joint imperatives here in verse 15. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold. Together, the two words communicate the spiritual posture or demeanor, we could say, of the Christian who is set and resolved on persevering and pushing through all the various attacks that will come their way, and doing so successfully when the rubber meets the road. And so therefore, in order to really get a picture of both the affections and the acts of the persevering Christian, uh, we'll look at these words individually. The first one, stand fast, in the original, is actually a military word. Where a commander uh, would give orders to a soldier under uh, him uh, for them to, to maintain their battle position, no matter what, to stay put where they are, to hold the line, to stand at the ready and embrace themselves for meeting the enemy face to face, marching toward them in combat. It takes great courage to obey this command and to not just book it for the hills like a coward. And so the scriptures themselves often use this to convey to us a fearless boldness and zeal for God in general and for his divine truth. 1 Corinthians 16 verse 13, Paul calls the very wishy-washy and immature believers in uh, Corinth to watch, stand fast in the faith, be brave, and be strong. Those are all words associated with war. They're all traits of a good warrior on the battlefield. That no matter how intense or fierce the attacks are, he's going to dig his, he, his heels deep and not abandon his post or his field position until his commander tells him to. In Ephesians 6, verses 13 to 14, the word used of the soldier who is girded with truth and and equipped with the breastplate of righteousness, who has utilized all his weapons and battle gear to withstand against the evil uh, that was assailing him. We read these words, And having done all to stand, stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. When it comes to truth, friends, especially divine truth that has been revealed to us by special revelation, the persevering heart of a saint does not just gullibly embrace whatever is presented to him as truth. No, he examines everything on the basis of what God has said in the word of truth. What saith the scriptures? As it pertains to the free justification of unrighteous sinners, the impeccable righteousness 
of Jesus Christ. The sufficiency of Christ as a Savior by virtue of His perfect life, His atoning death, and His life-giving resurrection, or whatever other saving truth that is contained in the Holy Scriptures. The persevering child of God is deeply rooted and grounded in them, and thus he'll not be easily swayed to abandon them when confronted with Doctrines that have no ground in the infallible teachings of the Word of God. And when it comes to their acts, they are very much concerned with whether or not what they are being presented with or what they are being compelled to do by others is in fact a righteous thing in the sight of Jehovah. Before engaging a heart that is striving to perseveringly abide in Christ, it will pause. It will be like the Bereans and search out the morality, the validity of a thing from the Word of God. As they are focused the most upon walking uprightly before God and having a good conscience toward man in all things. He seeks to do right at all times. Psalm 106, verse 3. And there's a keen awareness that the world does not always offer him the right way to go. Really far from it. He's not naive to the devil and to his devices. And so it is by standing firm with a militaristic kind of zeal upon the training received as a soldier in Christ's army that produces perseverance. When we are confronted with apostates, and their subtle temptations to get us to join in with them. And so the need of the hour is very great. Obey the orders of your Master, the Lord Jesus Christ. Stand fast, yield up not so much as an inch of ground. When it comes to the revealed truths and practical holiness, these are our standing orders at all times. In the church of Christ. Therefore, my beloved and longed for brethren, my joy and my crown, stand fast in the Lord, beloved. Philippians 4, verse 1. That's our charge as Christian pilgrims. Until we come to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, what we've been eternally predestined and, and projected for, keep your eye on that as the finish line, and you will find that it will goad you to stand firm on the path of righteousness that God has set you on by His grace in Christ. But it's not just stand fast in mind and heart, because here Paul adds to it, under divine inspiration, hope. This has the idea of grasping onto something and not letting it go. Not a loose or a relaxed grip, but a two-handed squeezing and clutching, as it were, both firm and tight. A death grip, you might call it. The word in the original has a violent forcefulness embedded in it. As you could translate it, seize or keep it. Under your custody, which is not something that you can just do passively. No, this takes effort and intentionality on our end. Meanwhile, also seeking for God's omnipotent hand to do these things by his spirit to give you the power to do as he commands. But what exactly are we told to hold on to 
with so much vehemency and constancy, and putting it with all the other um, words as well, what is it that we are to stand fast in, or upon that, uh, or 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 upon that will ensure, friends, that we persevere triumphantly to the end? And this brings us now, friend, to consider for the rest of our time our third point, which is where Paul, Savannah, and Timothy speak of the means of Christian perseverance. The means of Christian perseverance. Friends, this is God's appointed means, the means of His grace, that if we are to walk in accordance with it and under its power, we will be those who shall endure safely through all the attacks of the evil one against us. Paul writes it in this way in verse 15, Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold, note it, the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or our epistle. Now, because that phrase, the traditions, as you probably know, has been a source of much controversy and confusion throughout the church visible throughout the centuries, one that the devil himself has used to take people's hearts away from following the true gospel of Christ, I cannot stress to you enough how important it is that we interpret this part of the verse correctly in light of the scriptures as a whole and according to its proper context. I'll start with how some would want us to understand this term tradition. There are those who look at this text and will say to you, and I've had many say it to me, Aha, Protestants, we really got you now. You say that we are only to adhere and obey what God has expressly written and laid down in the scriptures. Ah, 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 wrong. Look, Paul uses the word traditions here, which means we're not just to follow scripture alone, but we are to follow scripture plus all those unwritten traditions that have been passed down orally from generation to generation in the church. So goodbye to sola scriptura, your precious little doctrine, because this verse disproves it. The real way that we are to persevere is by embracing Scripture plus all the various traditions that the church has practiced historically as they are equally as binding upon us as the Word of God. How would you respond to that, brothers and sisters? If you have ever shared the gospel with a Roman Catholic or talked to him about the nature of the Scriptures you can almost guarantee that he's going to open up his Bible and he's going to take you right here to verse 15 to try to get you to ascribe to this model of Scripture plus tradition as the dual equal standards for how we are to live our lives as disciples of Christ. So the question we're seeking to answer is this. Are Paul, Savannah, and Timothy denying the doctrine of sola scriptura by the way that they are speaking of traditions. Absolutely not. God forbid. And here's why, friends. Several reasons show that by traditions, Paul does not mean the unwritten traditions of the church that the Roman Catholic Church views as being equal authority to God's written revelation. For starters, to take 
uh, traditions here as uninspired, unwritten words of men orally passed down is pure conjecture at the finest. Why? Well, what in the context can you point to that would lead you to conclude that Paul has somehow moved away from speaking about the revealed doctrines of the gospel to now bringing in ecclesiastical traditions that are nowhere in Scripture? What seems to trip people up is this word, tradition. The word, but the word is not one that you need to be scared of because it can either be used negatively or positively depending on the context. The word simply means something that is delivered from one to another. As the Greek word is two words put together, giving over and from. And so when you boil it down to the bare, the barest of bones, there are only two kinds of traditions that are mentioned in the scriptures. There are human traditions and there are divine traditions. There are man-made traditions, some of which can be good. You probably have some kind of family traditions, I, I, I would think, which do not violate the law of God, I hope. Uh, sharing the highs and lows about your day at the dinner table, that was a tradition in my family, and even still is to this day. Uh, what about, for example, eating pizza on Friday nights to give mom a break from cooking? Whatever it might be, your uh, family uh, traditions. But then there are human traditions that have been invented by a wicked heart, the wicked heart of man, that are in fact contrary to and go directly against God's morally revealed law. Our Lord Jesus, he has much to say about those kind of traditions, and it is not good words. For example, Mark 7, verses 7 through 8, Christ accuses the Pharisees of worshiping God in vain. Why? By teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And then he rebukes them further. He says, for laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the traditions of men. The ceremonial washing of pitchers and cups and many other such things you do. And so there is a stark contrast being made there by Christ. On the one hand, you have traditions of God, i.e. His commandments, which are the truest doctrines, uh, or the true doctrines to be taught and done by man. While on the other hand, you have humanly devised traditions that actually seek to annul, to make void God's commandments. Now, clearly, Paul, Savannah, and Timothy are not commanding the Thessalonians to hold on to human traditions which transgress God's commands. Nor is he referring to merely family traditions. Uh, That much is plain. So therefore, whatever is meant by traditions here, we are dealing in the realm of divine traditions that are established by God himself and are fully made known to his people. So the question now then that has to be addressed is, where do we find these God-given traditions? And how do we come to know them so that we can stand fast and hold on to them? It's really hard to stand fast and hold on to something that you have no idea where it is or what it is. Or put this way, are there, tra- uh, are there traditions from God that he has given that we are bound to keep in obedience that are not contained in the teachings of Scripture? The Roman church says yes, whereas we as Re- Reformation Christians deny this utterly. In the word of God, you and I, friends, we have everything we need pertaining to life and godliness. 2 Peter 1, verse 3. Everything. 
To say that there is somewhere floating around out there a plethora of unwritten down traditions that we must keep is an outright attack, friends, upon the perfection, the sufficiency of the scriptures and their teaching. To say that additional supplemental traditions of the apostles and godly church leaders throughout the ages are necessary to complete God's revelation to man for his salvation is to make out scripture to be less than perfect, inadequate, incomplete, lacking, and makes God's truth to stand upon the shoulders of men. That the decrees of men are on the same level of God's breathed out and inspired word. I ask you then, brothers and sisters, how can the Holy Spirit here be speaking of unwritten tradition? It cannot be unwritten. It cannot be unverifiable teachings of the apostles or those who came after them because look how Paul speaks of these divine traditions he's calling upon them to hold on to. They cannot be merely an orally preserved collection of sacred tradition because he says he taught the Thessalonians in his words. That is in his preaching and in his epistles to them, which is not a reference to... Uh, or, which is no doubt, excuse me, a reference to First Thessalonians, which was most definitely written and can be identified. And so what is this tradition he speaks of that he preached to them while he was with them and that he wrote to them, instructing them thereby? Friends, he's referring to the evangelical doctrines of the apostolic gospel or the ordinances that are according to it. Those which are fully contained in the word of God. That which he faithfully proclaimed to the Thessalonians in all of his sermons. And that which he wrote down for the church. That they might always have it in their possession. Exactly. For the very reason that they wouldn't be duped by additions that seek to add to it and corrupt it. So the traditions to be held on to for our persevering in our Christian faith are the doctrines and ordinances in God's word, written down revelation in his perfectly preserved word. And so in verses 13 and 14, that's what they were unfolding to them, were they not? And now they're saying, all that we have taught you didactically from the scriptures, that and that only is to be your rule. And as long as you do that, Thessalonians, you'll be able to withstand all the spiritual attacks Upon you, hold only to the divine traditions as we've delivered them to you. From the word of God and all that it teaches, friends, you have all that you need. You have all that you need, believer, to stand against the mighty currents of this dark age in which we live in. Thomas Manton, he wrote, We have all, in the doctrine delivered to us, which has been handed down to us by the scripture as the means... We have all that belongs to faith, obedience, and happiness. And beyond that, the creature can desire no more. Now to know his will concerning us, we are often bid to search the scriptures. But never are we bidden to consult with the church to know what secret unwritten tradition she has in her keeping to instruct us in our duty. End quote. For our perseverance to be founded upon an unwritten record of teachings would be a very shaky foundation, would it not? God has nowhere promised that oral traditions of men's recollections will not pass away. But God the Son has indeed made this promise, that heaven and earth will pass away, but my words they shall never 
pass away. Matthew 24, verse 35. And that, my friends, is the steady rock that our faith has been placed upon. Anything other than that is just sinking sand. And so when Christ is combating a Satan in the wilderness? Does he draw from mere traditions of the church to resist the devil? Or does he go to the holy and certain traditions or ordinances laid down forever in the living and enduring word of God? It's the latter, never the former. So we need to do likewise, beloved, in our own wrestlings with the forces of darkness. So if the man of God, as the scriptures themselves declare, 2 Timothy 3.17, is by the written word made perfect and thoroughly furnished to every good work, then tell me where is the need to search out for uncredible, unproven traditions that claim to come from the apostles, but the word of God is completely silent upon, or where many a times the scripture actually goes directly against these so-called long-standing traditions. In the church. And so, as we close, where will you choose to place the essence of your faith? Solely upon the divinely revealed traditions of God's Word, which, can, which we can know for certain came from the apostles? Or would you rather place it in doubtful and speculative, at best, unwritten traditions that have been crafted by sinful men, no matter how well intentioned? they were. I know where I want to stand, standing fast and holding on to what I can look people in the eyes and say, this is God's inspired revelation, what he has given through his apostles by his Holy Spirit who cannot lie and tell them with absolute certainty, thus says the Lord God. And so whatever it is you're trying to sell me, is wrong because I cannot find it here. That's the heart cry of the persevering Christian, utilizing evangelical doctrines delivered to us from the scriptures themselves to resist false doctrines that the servants of Satan and all antichrists will try to sell you on. And so may God cause you to stand fast and hold to the traditions which you were taught. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your holy word. Lord, we thank you that you have told us to stake our claims, our lives, our all in all upon your word. And so, Lord, may we do so that we might truly persevere in Christian doctrine to your glory and honor. We ask this in Christ's name and for his sake.